0: President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETF sponsor, and also a registered representative of Foreside Fund Services. The discussion today is not tied to the Office of Investment Products the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Church Affiliates. We have a really exciting show today. Um, this is a preview. We're doing a, a taping of a discussion uh, as we're going to be uh, away over the weekend on Friday. Um, you know, We have this, this special guest each year around this time, David Kotak, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Cumberland Advisors, organizes a weekend known as Cam Kotak. Uh, we have two guests from Cam Kotak here to, to talk to us about their experiences, their thoughts they're going to be doing a, a discussion on Saturday night at Camp Kotak. Uh, you know, this camp is part fishing trip, part conference, part vacation. Uh, everybody's been talking about the economy, financial issues, politics. I'll be attending with them, and we're looking forward to hearing what we discuss there and get a little preview of that on the show today. Uh, as our first guest, Martin Barnes, welcome to our program. He's the chief economist at, at BCA Research. Martin, great to be talking to you. Yes, hi there. Um, so this is my first time going to Camp Kotaka. Uh, how long have you been going to, to the camp?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, many, many years. Um, I'm not, one, not from the very, very beginning of it, but six, seven years, maybe more. That's great. Uh,
0: and so talk a little bit about, you know, as, as you're, you're, you're going to be participating in a panel discussion, uh, I think Saturday night there, uh, maybe think about, you know, we could talk about who else will be on the panel, a little bit of what you're looking to get out of that in, in the discussions with your, your fellow
1: participants. Okay. So um, just for the last few years, David Kotok, the organizer of these gatherings, has is- just tried to spice things up a bit with with putting on debates about topical issues. So the the issue he has chosen for this year is Fed policy, and that's appropriate because you know the markets have been obsessed with with fed policy for years in terms of the the easing period and now the unwinding of the of the easing and the impact that this may or may not have on the economy and the market so there's a lot of uncertainties about uh, who's going to be running the fed when Janet Yellen's term uh, expires early next year you know how the fed is going to manage its balance sheet uh, versus Changing interest rates—you has know, got options open to it in terms of how it tightens policy, um, what the impact of, of of unwinding the quantitative easing is going to be on the market. So lots of unanswered questions yeah. about the Fed that are quite important for the market. So we're going to have this fairly short—it's only a half hour discussion—and this I've been asked to moderate it, and there's four panelists. Um, Two who have some insider-fed experience, and two who are seasoned observers, if you like, of the Fed. So we have Bob Eisenbeis, who used to be a research director at the Atlanta Fed, and Danielle DiMartino, who formerly had been an advisor to President Richard Fisher of the Dallas Fed. So those are our two Fed insiders, and then we have two, let's call them Fed watchers, if you like, Jim Bianco a Chicago-based observer of the markets and policy, and Megan Green, who's Chief Economist of Manulife, and again, a keen observer of these things. So I'll just be peppering those panellists with some questions, and hopefully we'll get some lively debate and opportunities for people from the floor to throw in their views as well.
0: Very good, and we're going to be talking with Jim Bianco on the second part. We'll get a preview of, of his thoughts for Saturday. Um, maybe you could give you know your highest level when you think about the big issues for the Fed. Um, you outlined a lot of the key questions uh, that that people are looking at, but maybe we can start getting your views on on our program here to see how you think some of these things will play out in terms of you know maybe the biggest question is is Yellen going to still be running the Fed next year? Do you have a a <laughs> guesstimate? Is Yellen well, going to be there? Yeah, are we going well, to get
1: somebody good. new? That's a political uh, choice for, for, for the for the Trump administration, and I can't pretend to have any particular insight on that. My only yeah. thought on that is I mean she is basically a, a West Coast liberal and I can't think that she thinks uh, I can't believe that she has very kind thoughts about the Trump administration. Um, so I, I'm not entirely sure that she would even want to serve another term. I mean, she would intellectually, you know, and see through the, you know, the policy sh- shifts. But I don't think she would look forward with any joy to working with the current administration. It, even Although you could say she's if really interested given, in being a foil. A choice.
0: Sorry. If she's interested in being the foil to the administration and trying to say she's going to do well, you know, the question would they want her to be in that role? But if well, it was for for the country's that, interest, you know,
1: so the president has made it clear that he he likes the low interest rates. Yeah. Um, but interestingly enough, the kind of advisors that uh, you know he's had and you know just during the campaign and recently, people like Larry Kudlow and David Malpass and. Um, these are kind of hard money guys. They haven't really been big fans of, of Fed policy in recent years. Um, they're kind of people, other names that have been touted as possible replacements like Kevin Warsh, um, John Taylor, a bit of an outside outside choice, um, even Richard Fisher. These are kind of people who believe more in, in rules for policy, not just flying by the seat of your pants and any rule based kind of approach to monetary policy would have had you running a tighter, tighter policy than has occurred. Um so again, as I said, the kind of advisors that Trump has had have favoured even you've even had some gold standard kind of people, you know, that that Trump has followed. So I'm not convinced that you will end up with somebody who's, a, a, you know, ca- cast in the same mould as Janet Yellen, running a very, very loose policy. You might end up with uh, somebody who is a, a more hawkish bias.
0: Well, it's going to be very interesting to watch. And so, when you think about just the current Fed and how their per- current trajectory is to start unwinding the balance sheet, stop the reinvestment of of their balance sheet, and let it start tapering off. Yes. Um, do, do you think that's going to start here in the next September discussion and start being implemented sooner in October? Do you think the debt ceiling is one of the things I've seen people talk about as if we can't get the debt ceiling squared away, they may be hesitant to start that runoff. Well,
1: what's what's your I thoughts? I mean, so she has said that they're going to start the process very soon. Or relatively soon. Yeah, relatively soon, whatever. Um, (laughs) Key words here. Yeah, so the words matter, I guess. (laughs) And most people are interpreting that as maybe maybe in December. Um, And they'll do it by just not reinvesting the proceeds as opposed to actually selling down the assets that they own. You know, what's Interesting to me is that you know we had these uh, several years of quantitative easing, lots of studies done about uh, its impact and implications, and they don't really know. And at the end of the day, uh, without overstating it, I would say the Fed has been pretty clueless about the the real impact of its policies on the economy and the markets they can run their models and they can come up with with estimates but you have to treat any of these model estimates with an enormous grain more than a grain a silo of salt you know let's bear in mind here that the fed's forecasting record over the long run has been appalling if you go back 50 years, the Fed has failed to forecast any of the recessions that have occurred. I, I looked at this earlier this year, and I went back to the transcripts and looked at what the Fed was forecasting for the coming year, just at the time of the economy was heading into recession. And in every occasion, the Fed was forecasting the economy is going to keep growing over the next year. And what happened was the economy headed into recession. Now, they've been no worse than anybody else, in fact. I mean... Nobody in the mainstream economic world has been able to forecast recessions, you know, whether it's the OECD or the IMA or the private sector generally. So they're no worse. But if we get our forecast wrong, then, yeah, maybe we'll make bad investment decisions. If they get their forecast wrong, they're controlling the dials of the economy. So the consequences of them getting it wrong are rather more severe than me getting it wrong. So... Um, I have no confidence that the Fed really knows uh, about the outlook any more than you do or I do. Yeah. I think they're relatively clueless when it comes to that. And if you get them, you know, I've spent many years talking to Fed people. If you get them on a calm, honest day, they'll admit that their level of knowledge about what drives inflation, what drives the economy is You know, lots of holes in it. (laughs) Um, So they don't really know what the impact of QE was, and they don't really know exactly what the impact of unwinding it is going to be either. They'll have their estimates, but I think they'll move very cautiously in doing it, just for the simple reason that they don't really know. My personal view is that I don't think QE itself did have a huge impact on things. I think the low interest rate world certainly did the low policy rates. But QE obviously had some impact pushing down bond yields. But if it didn't have a big impact when they did QE, then unwinding it may not have a huge impact either. Right. Um so I'm not overly concerned. I don't think unwinding QE per se is gonna do huge damage to the economy. But nonetheless what? they will move very cautiously.
0: Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Martin Barnes, chief economist at BCA Research. We're previewing a discussion. Martin's going to be moderating at Camp Kotak this weekend in in Maine um, as part of uh, David Kotak's Annual retreats out there, um, this fishing expeditions, as well as just economic discussion. Um, you know, Martin, it's sort of interesting here on on the Fed and 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 the the QE path and how they how they plan to unwind it. You know, you talked about the the Fed's own uncertainty and and there's a number of different Fed officials we've had on our program before, James Bullard, who's now come to this regime dependent view of the world that you know he's basically is saying we can't we can't forecast. We have to sort of take this regime based view. We're in a sort of low growth regime. We have a right. low policy rate for them that regime today, is that something you're, you're sympathetic with, that that sort of going in that path of we, we can't forecast the economy, so we have to Well, it, well
1: as I've mentioned earlier, they, they can't forecast the economy. You know, to be honest, not many people can. I mean, nobody can, yeah. really. The future is largely unknown. You make your best guess at it, and sometimes you might get it right, but generally, uh, yeah. In terms of the regime, look, the, the, the facts certainly... Support that. I mean, you can just look at the the long run path of both economic growth rates and, say, the level of of real interest rates. And over the decades, they have been trending lower. You know, throughout the decade that we're in, you know. We've had negative real rates in the dec- you know, in the, in the 2000s decade, real rates averaged close to one in the decade before that, in the 90s they averaged close to three, and the 80s they averaged close to five. So, real rates have been have been ground down lower and lower as economic growth rates have come down, and now the big yeah, debate or question facing central banks and Yellen talks about this a lot. Um, what is the underlying equilibrium real interest rate level. I mean, they always used to assume it was going to be broadly close to the growth rate of the economy. So if the economy is capable of growing at 2% a year then that's where you would think real interest rates ought to be. But now they think eh, even if the economy grows at 2 real interest rates might only be in the 0 to to 1% zone. Yeah. So Rates aren't going to go up as much in future cycles as they used to in the past.
0: That new um, neutral, Professor Siegel talks about that a lot on our show, thinking that maybe right. the new neutral, maybe two percent nominal, so you get basically zero real. He thinks that may be where right. you get so the this Fed cycle.
1: the Fed itself is forecasting that rates will get back to three. Yeah, the long run rate is three, and inflation is. Two, their long-run desired inflation is two. So they're basically saying we think the real rate is going to be one, which is not the two that they used to think. <laughs> yeah. The market thinks it's probably going to be lower than that. Do you, do you have a so somewhere in the zero to one? Is, you know, so there's a gap between what the Fed thinks it's going to do and what the market is predicting.
0: And the market's been generally right. The Fed keeps coming down towards the market. I mean, so the question is: is is there some underlying productivity trends that you think, or economic growth trends, when you think about just what the two factions? we know demographics are are applying less, you know, growth in the labor force, right. and then the question is, what's our productivity going to well, be? Well, that's
1: exactly the right question, and that's going to be the key driver of long-run economic growth. And again. I hate sounding like a wishy-washy economist, but that's where the big question mark is, yeah. you know, and that's where the big debate is: how, you know, are we going to get a revival of productivity growth, or is it structurally going to stay low? And again, you've got different camps. You've got the Bob Gordon, Northwestern University professor view who takes a pretty bearish view of future productivity growth in terms of the, we're not doing any major productivity-enhancing innovations, we're, we're past the peak of that, and then a more optimistic view saying there's lots of exciting things still, you know, ongoing and to come, and um, the evidence, such as it is at the moment, I think is more supportive of the Bob Gordon view. Yeah, but we
0: we, we with, had that debate on our show uh, a few weeks ago. We had Bob Gordon versus Joel Moker.
1: Bull right. uh, I, hair I you know? I'm more sympathetic to Bob Gordon. Yeah. Um, to be honest, not that there's not lots of exciting things going on. Of course there are, but you know, as I'm sure Bob articulated better than I could ever do, they're not on the same scale as the things that we've had previously. Does not mean that we won't get something? I mean, if yeah. somebody's working in a basement or a lab somewhere and comes up with some amazing breakthrough and cold fusion or something, that's a game changer, you know. but things like 3D printing and all that kind of stuff are not game changers, not not when it comes to productivity.
0: So so how do you think about the the global environment today? I mean, when you think about the central banks, the Fed policy is obviously one of the impacts on keeping rates low, but you have negative rates around the world, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, and you could argue that's one of the big things pressuring our interest rates lower than they otherwise would be. Um, I mean, what's your view there?
1: This, you know, change regime view of the world is very much a global story. So, you know, the demographics story with slower uh, growth in labor forces and aging populations and declining productivity is very much a a, a story everywhere. Um, So all central banks are kind of facing the same... Same issues. I mean, as you well know, Japan's had zero interest rates for a very long time and shows no signs of being able to raise them anytime soon. And Europe, again, is trapped in a similar kind of place. Um, debt levels are high, growth is better than it was, but it's still not exactly roaring away. Unemployment is still high ish in Europe, or certainly in some countries. Um they can't raise interest rates either, so we we're we are definitely in a low interest rate world compared to even relatively recent historical experience um doesn't mean that interest rates don't go up and they will in the they have been in the u s and they'll go up a little bit more, but we're not going back to to high interest rates for the foreseeable future. yeah, there's still a lot of forces you know again, technology keeping inflation down the so called uberization of, of a lot of sectors. So inflation, you know, may head up a bit over the next year, but it's not gonna race away. So okay. central banks are kinda of trapped. They would love to normalize policy. I mean cent- no central banker ever got you know, was happy to have to push interest rates to zero. They hated it. They have hated it. Um, and have been keen to get away from it as fast as possible. And the Fed has been able to start that process, but not the ECB and certainly not the Bank of Japan.
0: Sure. We're talking with Martin Barnes, the chief economist at BCA Research, about his views on the economy and monetary policy, fisc- you know, global policies here. Um, you know, Think about the, one of the big forces on, and the relative interest rates between the U.S. and, say, the ECB and Bank of Japan. You had this big move in the dollar going in 2014, 2015. Now you've had a big weakness in the dollar this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you could say there a lot of different things going into that and, say, you know, disappointments from what the Republicans and Trump administration have done. You could say maybe right. the ECB is about to change policy. Um, sort of push-pull on, you know, the Fed is is hiking while these other central banks are still very accommodative. I mean, what's your sense of what's happening in the dollar and do you think, you know, what what, just outlook for the dollar?
1: Well, I mean, if the only thing that mattered was relative monetary policy um, and maybe relative fiscal policy, then I guess you would... Have to you know, to bet on the dollar being on the firm side, not not, not the weak side, because even with the Fed um, moving slowly, they're still moving, and the ECB are not going to be moving um, as much as they might want to. Um, so when it, you know the, the way I would think about it is, you know, when I look at the US, well, when you talk about currencies, you obviously have to look at. Both sides of the of the, of the equation—it's the dollar versus something else. So you have to look at the, yeah. you know, the fundamentals underneath the dollar and the fundamentals underneath whichever other currency you are talking about. So if you ignore that just for the moment and just look at the U.S. in its own right and ask yourself the question, without knowing what the alternatives might be, if you just looked at the U.S., is this? country that you would expect to have a strong exchange rate um, you know you would see that you know having had the deepest recession since the 30s you've had the weakest economic recovery uh, in the post-war period you've had fairly dysfunctional politics you've got still got a big balance of payments deficit you've still got a, a fiscal large fiscal deficit with long term trends showing you know it's going to get a lot worse because of uh, aging, etc. cetera um, you 've got monetary policy which has been very stimulative, and you have to ask yourself this doesn 't sound like a great story for that the cur- the currency of that country weak economy, dysfunctional politics still got twin deficits and low interest rates um, Surely there has to be something better than that for me to invest in around the world, and it's really only when you look <laughs> at the alternatives that you the see Euro. that they're, they're even worse. And you know, yeah. so I see very little case looking at the US to be bullish on the dollar. Right, I think it's a pretty horrid story, and you know, uh, and it's only because the other places have even bigger problems that makes the dollar look marginally attractive. But we're in a kind of world where. Nobody really wants a strong currency. In a, in a world where you know, countries are trying to get their inflation rates up, not down, where they're trying to get growth rates up, um, having a strong currency is, is a problem. Um, so if the dollar got too strong here, you'll see that it'll force the Fed to back off. And if the euro gets too strong, it's going to undermine the economic expansion there, etc., so I think currencies are a little bit range-bound here. Um, the dollar probably got too strong last year, so it's unwound a lot of that this year. Um, but I, I, I don't see the case for being super bullish on the dollar here, but uh, it probably doesn't have much more downside. Yeah. Um, a lot, well, some there'll be some dependence on what happens on the fiscal front, Um, You know, if the U.S. is able to have some fiscal stimulus here um, in terms of tax cuts, get some infrastructure spending, etc., I suppose that would be dollar bullish.
0: Let me ask you, we've got about three or four minutes uh, in the first part of this this segment here. Maybe we we haven't talked a lot about your firm at BCA Research. Maybe you could sort of summarize our conversation and and say the focus that you have as chief economist and then sort of the research output that your your firm produces for people who listen in who might not be subscribers or or think you you could, uh, you know, make the case of what, you know, and and any other things you guys are focused on at BCA Research you'd want to highlight.
1: Sure. Well, if you haven't been in the financial sector, you probably wouldn't have ever heard of us, but the firm has been around since 1949. I think we are probably the world's largest independent investment research firm. I don't know who would be bigger than us, in the sense of that all we do is research. We don't have a money management arm or a brokerage arm or anything. So our our business purely is trying to figure out uh, where markets are going, um, our clients, our institutions, all over the world. And, Although we're we're based in Canada, Montreal, have been since 1949, our client base is, is totally global and covers institutions of all kinds, from hedge funds to pension funds and everything in between. And we focus on global markets, all asset classes. And myself and my colleagues scratch our heads every day just trying to figure out how we can help our clients make the right investment decisions, which is challenging, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but the fact that we've been around since 1949, I guess, means something. We're still in business. Yeah.
0: Very good. Uh, any other final closing thoughts on across the markets uh, as you think about those major decisions, stocks versus bonds, U.S. versus foreign, any any places you're, you're trying to favor today, given that environment?
1: Well, you know, the big question is, at what point do you do you bail on the stock market and say, you know, thank you very much, it's been a wonderful ride, uh, we've been in an eight-year bull market, I've made a lot of money and it's time to jump off the train and not worried about missing the last 10-50% upside and that's a, a big decision to have to make. We're still on the train for the moment because we think that, uh, you know, the monetary environment is going to stay supportive of stocks relative to bonds, the earnings are okay at the moment we don't see a recession within a one-year horizon, certainly. So, for the moment, we are we are still favouring stocks over bonds. And as many people would probably agree, you know, the U.S. market looks the more expensive of the major international markets. So, there is a strong case for diversifying into overseas markets. But uh, we're still we don't we don't see any of enough of the warning signs that would tell us to bail from the stock market at the moment that being said me personally I think it would make sense to start taking money off the table at this point you know with the with given valuations with the fed raising rates um, I think earnings expectations are too optimistic so not selling all your stocks but gradually whittling you know whittling away at the you know, at the overweight position, I think, would make sense at this level of the market.
0: Well, very good. I appreciate you taking the time with us ahead of Cam talk. Uh, I'm looking forward to meeting there in person.
1: Likewise. Thank you. Uh,
0: we've been talking with Martin Barnes, Chief Economist at BC Research. You're listening to Behind the Markets and Business Radio, SiriusXM 111. We'll be back after a short break. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Joining us via phone here is Jim Bianco, president of Bianco Research, LLC, an Arbor Research and Trading LLC affi- affiliate. Jim, welcome to our program. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, we're doing a little bit of a preview of the Camp Kotak weekend here. Uh, we had Martin Barnes, who will be moderating the panel that you're on. Uh, he previewed a little bit of his thoughts on thinking about the debate or discussion gonna having on Fed policy. Um, maybe you could sort of walk through, I mean, first, how often have you been going to to Camp Kotak? This is going to be my first year you're attending the camp.
2: My sixth year.
0: Sixth year. Um, And so what's been some of your your favorite elements uh, and and, uh, what you're looking forward to?
2: Um, My favorite elements are probably a combination of the people that go to the camp. Uh, There's usually 50 or 60 economists, portfolio managers, strategists. I've gotten to know all of them over the years. It's good to get together with them. And talk in an unfettered environment uh, as well, too. And I also enjoy trout fishing as well.
0: Very nice. Well, I'm looking forward to meeting you there in person. It's my first time going. So uh, we'll, we'll see you in a few days. Um, you know, so as, a, as a preview for just our listeners on, on Fed policy, maybe talk a little bit about, you know, your background at Bianco Research and, and what you've been focused on and how, you know, you're, you're going to try to apply that to what you think is going on at the Fed here.
2: Yeah, so Bianco Research is an independent research firm. I am, as you mentioned, affiliated with a small institutional brokerage firm called Arbor Research and Trading. Both entities are located in Chicago. Bianco Research has been around for 19 years. We do research mainly in the macro space with a fixed income bet. I like to say that because we cover a lot of things from a macro perspective, whether it's politics or the financial markets. Uh, or a lot of topics within that as well too, and of course one of the really big topics that we've been talking about for decades has been Federal Reserve policy as well. I have participated on um, panels like this before at Camp Kotak talking about the Fed. So that's my quick little background.
0: Very good. So, yeah, we're going to have to get, even though politics isn't part of your panel, we're definitely going to have to get some sense of what's going on politically, because obviously that's a, a very topical part of the conversations today as well. But overview of the Fed, as you think forward for the next 12 months, um, you've got a few big issues in terms of the balance sheet rundown, when they do their next hike, who will be Fed share next year? I mean, what are the big ones that you think you're focused on more so than others uh, in terms of having strong views there?
2: Yeah, I'll start with the third question first. Who is going to be the Federal Reserve chairman? Um, the, only, the only thing I've settled on is it will not be not be Janet Yellen. She's not. Uh, it's going to be in the mode of the uh, Trump administration that it's going to be probably a businessman. Now, Trump has mentioned Gary Cohen, former head of Goldman Sachs, and his uh, economic advisor as being a frontrunner. Kevin Warsh, who is a former Fed governor and uh, now at the Hoover Institute Institution is also another name that has been t- bandied about as well, too. Uh, I don't know whether it's going to be one of those names or the other, but it's not going to be Yellen. Her term is going to end. Now, what does that mean? I think it means two things. The Fed has a tradition of trying to make the tough decision before the new person comes in. Case in point, Ben Bernanke in December of 2014 Uh, started the uh, so-called taper of the Fed's quantitative easing program before Janet Yellen took uh, office in February of 2015. So he got the ball rolling for her before she left. Likewise, I think that unless something extraordinary happens, the Fed will start reducing the size of its balance sheet at its September meeting. Extraordinary would be defined as nothing short of a stock market panic, which I don't think we're going to have, which I think is a very low probability, but it would take something of that level to stop them from doing it uh, at their September meeting. Your final question about rate hikes, uh, I have been of the opinion, this is a little more nuanced, I have been of the opinion that in the post-crisis period, the Federal Reserve is scared to death of financial markets. The Federal Reserve thinks that part of the problem of 2008 was, an unnecessary panic in financial markets about the mortgage crisis. And those are a lot of loaded terms you can ask me about those. So the Fed looks to what the financial markets price in, and if if the financial markets are on a different page than the Fed, the Fed will cave to the market's wishes. 2016 was the great case in point. The Fed insisted they wanted to raise rates four times. The financial markets never priced anything close to that in. And they caved and only priced once. Currently, the Fed is again saying that by the end of 2018, they're going to raise rates four more times. The financial markets are barely pricing in one and a half rate hikes between now and the end of 2018. I think we get one and a half rate hikes. Unless the financial markets can be persuaded to price in something more, the Fed is too afraid to fight them. Because they think if they fight them, they could induce a panic, and that could make a situation worse, so they always cave to their wishes.
0: Now, one of the issues you, you mentioned on, on watching politics, and in terms of the issues that could derail the Fed, and and you know all these politics discussions, you say, why are we even having these discussions? But the whole debt ceiling discussion, um, which we keep making an issue, <laughs> which, is a, which is a crazy issue, how do you see that playing out? Is that one of those things that can der- derail the September meeting?
2: It could. um but I don't uh, think that that will be an issue. Just a, a couple of clarifying points. Most likely the debt ceiling is going to and after, we're going to hit the debt ceiling after the September 15th meeting. So we're going to walk right through that meeting without it being an issue. Uh, the debt ceiling, I think it's important for people to understand, the debt ceiling is important for largely one reason. When the federal government hits the debt ceiling, the federal government is not allowed to prioritize payments. Okay, we don't have enough money to pay everything that the federal government wants. We could pay most of it. Debt, um, uh, treasury debt service, you know, paying interest on the debt is a priority. It's a priority for a lot of states. In fact, it's written into their constitutions they have to pay that first. But the federal government can't do that. They can't say we should pay federal debt first. So they wind up paying nothing. If you are a fixed income owner, like a a mutual fund owner, and you own some treasury bills or some treasury debt that matures on October 1st, even though you'll get your money in the second or third, you have to value it at zero. And that could create a panic in financial markets because all of a sudden everybody's going to look and they're going to say, why did my mutual fund lose 60% of its value today? Well, the government didn't pay. When they get it sorted out in a day or two, it'll go right back up. It's easy for us to say. But what a lot of people have fear of is it won't be wide, large, largely understood that way, and it will largely be considered a, a point of crisis. And furthermore, if the price is down 60%, then I want to buy it down at that level so when it revalues the next day, I can make a 60% profit. So that's why it's a big issue. I don't think it's going to come to that. I think because we've got a, a, a Congress and, uh, that is Republican and a president that is Republican, they will not commit political suicide, that it wouldn't even be a murder because there isn't even an opposition on that. There will be a lot of pomp and circumstance leading up to the debt ceiling. But yeah. at the end of the day, they will do something to continue to play this game along. Uh, payment prioritization is not something they can do, but they can find a lot of accounting trees to keep it going or maybe just find a way to pass a higher debt ceiling.
0: So you think the Fed will just look past that. We potentially will start uh, making those tough decisions. So do you think it's possible before? I mean, when do you think we get the inclination that it's not Yellen, that you think it's going to be one of these other businessmen? When does that news start getting released?
2: I think it's already out there in the marketplace right now. I'll give you one metric. There are betting markets. There are betting markets and everything under the sun. Currently, there is a betting market on the website Predictit.org, which is the largest in the United States. They're giving Yellen an 11% chance of being the next Fed chairman, and they're giving Gary Cohen a 47% chance of being the next Fed chairman. They're giving Kevin Warsh a 12% chance. So she's actually running third Third. in a three-horse race. Point is, I think it's already in the market that she's not coming back. I just, you know, the question is, is who's going to replace her?
0: Sure. Um, So the idea that the Fed is kowtowing to the market or bowing to the um, market—I mean, where 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 do you think they should be on policy rate if they weren't um, bowing to the market? Do you think they would be much higher here?
2: No, I don't think. I think there's two issues. I think that uh, they wouldn't be much higher than where they are now. They're very close right now to being at fair value um, currently uh, with interest rates. But where I do think if they uh, weren't kowtowing to the markets is their balance sheet wouldn't be as big. And I think that if a business person comes in, I think that the biggest difference between an academic Ph.D. at the Fed and a business person is market signals. Business people like to look at market prices and markets, not only not only stock markets, but whatever business they happen to be in and say, What's that market telling me? Is it healthy or is it unhealthy? Is it presenting opportunities because I think it's cheap, or is it presenting risk because I think it's expensive? That's the way business people look at it. They would look at the idea that the Fed's balance sheet has been bloated with the express purposes, Bernanke said. The Fed creates money, expands their balance sheet, uses that money to manipulate the level of interest rates lower than they should be. Business people would say, that's wrong because you're taking an important market signal, the level of interest rates, and you're distorting them. And that will lead to a lot of bad decisions. So we have to stop with this market distortion stuff. Academic PhDs think it's necessary. They think it's the job of the Fed to distort markets when it needs to be distorted. So I think that that's going to be the biggest thing. That uh, The biggest thing is... This balance sheet would have never gone this big, would have never lasted this long if there was more market-oriented people at the Federal Reserve. And I think that if we don't have a market person at the, or, uh, an academic PhD at the top, and somebody with real business experience, they won't push interest rates as much. But they'll say, this is a distorting thing that needs to stop and stop as quickly as we can.
0: That's what I think their emphasis yeah. will be. We're talking about Jim Bianco of Bianco Research about his views on the Fed, monetary policy here. Um, I mean, how much, if, if we were to, I mean, it's, it's hard to say all the what-if scenarios and the counterfactuals, um, but if, if they were to wind down the balance sheet quicker, I mean, how much higher do you think the long rate would be? I mean, obviously it's a whole global system and you have the central banks in Europe and Japan and they're all doing this 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 QE and bond buying that's the yields globally. But how much of it do you think is real, just underlying economic growth, productivity, growth, demographics, all those things, risk aversion, pushing down the natural demand for rates versus how much is the Fed just following the market there um, versus them constraining yields? I mean, absent all this bond buying from the central banks, how much higher do you think rates would be?
2: Um, let me let me put a, a little qualifier of what you just said. We, we've done you know testing on this and statistical testing on it, and what we have found is is the biggest driver of interest rates post crisis has been the size of all the global balance sheets not just the federal reserve all of yeah. them together it's over you can explain over half the movement of interest rates with it and yes they are lower than they would be now since the fed has stopped with the, its bond buying 3 years ago and is now talking about reducing its balance sheet the ecb the european central bank and the boj the bank of japan the BOE, the Bank of England, have been aggressively expanding their balance sheets so that global balance sheets have continued to, global central bank balance sheets, have continued to expand. That is depressing interest rates. The Fed announcement in and of itself I don't think will be a big deal, but what we have found is the Fed is usually a leading indicator that September of 2017, October 2017, I don't think it's going to be a problem for the bond market. The end of 18 or the early 19 when the ECB joins them, when the BOE joins them, with them stopping with their bond buying and reducing their balance sheets, then that could be a problem for the bond market, and you could see interest rates around the world start heading up. But I don't think it's going to be any time in the next several months or maybe even in the next year, because the Fed alone, especially they're going to to make an announcement they're going to reduce their balance sheet, and it's going to be very, very small, and it's going to take them – many, many months to get it ramped up to something significant. So it's the start of a journey that is actually going to be determined in Brussels, Belgium, and in Frankfurt, Germany, and not necessarily at the Eccles building where the Fed is in Washington, D.C.,
0: yeah, so when you think about that di- dichotomy and the divergence between monetary policy in the U.S. versus Europe and Japan, now, and they, they'll they be sort of slower. I don't know who you think will be the last one to raise rates. Maybe it's it's Japan, given some of the, you know, their— Yeah, their, I think that's it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they're printing yen as far as you can see. And, you know, in a way, you know, people said they have all this huge debt to GDP. Well, now the Bank of Japan is going to own all of that, all of that debt. Um, they have negative rates, so in a way, they're lowering their debt burden by borrowing more. Um, I mean, what, what, how do you think that, you know, plays out for the currency markets, which we've had big fluctuations last few years, first strong dollar last, you know, 2014, 2015, this year, we've got back a, a weak dollar, um, I mean, and then that all interacts with politics and, and the, the policies there. I mean, what, where's your, any sense of what's been happening in the currency markets?
2: Yeah, the currency markets, um, first of all, to back you up, I think the game changer for all of this, the, the Bank of Japan is a great example, you know, they've... They, in, if you were to go to an economist 15 years ago and show them what the Bank of Japan was doing, the conclusions would have been that their economy or their financial markets would be on the verge of collapse. You can't do that. You can't buy a third of your ETF market. You cannot buy 40 or 50 percent of the bonds that the government issues by printing money to pay for it without creating hyperinflation. But yet they still have deflation, and I think that that's the real answer. Is it's not necessarily currency-induced inflation but it's actually the too-much-money-chasing-too-few-goods level of inflation that we do not have that is allowing the currency markets to stay relatively stable. I say relatively stable. If we ever got inflation, and if there was ever a real belief that it was returning, and there isn't now, I think that the currency markets would be a lot more volatile and a lot more problematic um, than they are right now in the meantime i think that what's driving the currency markets in this environment is really more of a speculation than anything else on what the central banks are going to do or not do we track a lot of the numbers that measure speculation in the markets, and they're very very high especially in currencies like the euro um, in fact you've got record amounts of um... you know speculating buying going on in the euro dob euro strength dollar weakness and it's almost at unsustainable levels. That's what's driving the currencies now. It's not overarching economics. That would only come into play if we get inflation. And I don't think we're going to get it. So in the meantime, I think what we're going to see is what you suggested. You know, we're going to have a period where the dollar strengthens for several months. Then we have a period where it weakens for several months, strengthens for several months. And it kind of just stays in its range. It would take inflation to change that.
0: Yeah. Um, and so here's the existential question on Japan, where they, they keep buying every bond um, and eventually they own well over half the bond market. And then all of a sudden they, they wipe out that debt. I mean, do you think that makes their currency a stronger currency or, or does it completely collapse the currency?
2: Um, it, it depends on the, the the reasons that they wipe out the debt. Um,
0: I mean the government owns it and the Bank of Japan and the government issues it, the Bank of Japan buys it. I mean it's it's one and the same thing when they own the right, entire market.
2: Right. I mean if if they if they if they decide to wipe it out as a matter of policy when not being pressed to do it, I don't think that the financial markets are going to be problematic with it. Uh, at least initially. Longer term it can that that can be. If they wipe it out as a matter of course because there's inflation and they they don't know what else to do. They're kind of forced into this situation that could collapse their currency right now. Keep in mind that um, uh, central banks, you know, what the Bank of Japan is doing is exactly what the Federal Reserve has been doing for several years. It's just to a larger degree. The Federal Reserve has effectively wiped out five trillion dollars or four trillion dollars of U.S. debt. When I say effectively that they've done it the Federal Reserve for years now has a four owns four trillion dollars of treasuries. At the end of the year they get about a hundred billion dollars worth of coupon payments. They give it back to the Treasury. Whenever a bond matures, they print up the money to buy another bond. So effectively they've they've wiped they've reduced the amount of treasuries outstanding by four or five trillion dollars. So the Bank of Japan is doing the same thing that we're doing. It's just at a larger cost. It's not collapsing the dollar. It wouldn't necessarily collapse their currency. And that's the other thing too about the competitive nature of currencies, everybody's yeah. doing it. So it's not like one person's doing something that somebody else isn't. It's just a matter of degree.
0: We're talking about Jim Bianco, President of Bianco Research, about his views on the fixed income markets, the Fed policy, global central banks. Um, you know, we, In terms of how you take the forecast here for the Fed um, and, and – sort of coming to the market's views in a way. I mean, how do you think about positioning fixed income portfolios where we're in this, everybody's searching for yield, everybody's looking for safe assets. You have elevated equity markets from a valuation perspective. So people are afraid and they want to go to the risk-free asset, but then it's sort of return-free in a lot of ways. I mean, where do you suggest people to go for yield if they're trying to to sort of de-risk their equity portfolios? Uh, uh,
2: First of all, let's remember that what we're looking at in – Broad financial markets and in the fixed income market too, just like the stock market, is some of the lowest volatile, boring markets that we have seen in decades. That you know, people are you know, people are dying. You know, if you're in the commission sales business or you're an active trader, it's nothing to do. These things just don't yeah. move around that much. Uh, that's that's the backdrop that we're in. So what I've been arguing is the biggest driver of the markets until we get some major change in in the economics, uh, in uh, global economics, has been flows of money, and the flows of money in the in the bond market have largely been negative. Everybody, you know, I'm a bond guy, and everybody walks up to me and says, "Oh, you're the bond guy. How high are rates going to go? Oh, so we've already decided what what." direction they're going to go. We're just wondering degree. And I said, if it was that easy, I'd be richer than Jeff Bezos because I could go out and buy uh, sell bonds on leverage and just make as much money as I need to if I knew what direction they're going to go in. The point is, everybody believes rates are going to go up. Everybody's been selling bonds. They are not going up. There is an underlying demand for bonds for that yield of safe that safe asset yield in the central banks away from the Fed has been buying it. So I've been arguing that in that environment, I wouldn't be surprised if the next move over the next several months is down in yield. And we were going to stay at these levels or lower, that we won't get some kind of a sustained move up in yield for several months, if not a year, unless something changes. Inflation comes back, financial markets change, the economies take a U-turn that is not surprising. But if none of that happens, I think we're going to go lower on yields and we're going to kind of meander sideways. And that's what I've been arguing to people. I think the story for higher rates could still be 18 months away before, huh. if then, unless or until we get some kind of change in economics. And the final thought I'd give you is I think that there's a great underappreciation for the, how, how tied risk markets like equities are for rates. In other words... I've heard a number of people, it's almost an article of faith. Oh, yeah, the bond market's overvalued. Rates are going to go up when the Fed starts raising rates. You have to protect yourself by getting out of the bond market put your money in stocks. You might be right. And you might be right that the bond market will suffer in that environment. They'll go, this bond market, like the 10-year, could go down 7%. You lose 7% of your money in the bond market. Your reward will be a 15% decline in the stock market. Be very careful with that because I think that if the bond market goes over the side and you start seeing rates shoot up, which is what everybody says they want. I don't think it's going to be set. It's going to sit well at all with risk markets. That they'll be more volatile. The stock market will lose more money than the bond market will lose if the bond market starts becoming unhinged a little bit. Yeah. Whereas I think a lot of people um, negative beta assets,
0: saying, bonds are protecting. we going to go. You know, we, they they've always thought. You know, they go in the exact opposite direction, so We're getting portfolio diversification today.
2: Right. I don't think that that'll be the case if if that scenario comes to pass.
0: Very interesting. Um, so about three minutes left. Um, we haven't really talked. To you said one of the things you cover at Bianco is, is, is political side of things. Any current state of affairs you think? Are we going to actually get tax reform? Do you have a, a, a forecast of when we, uh, what you think will happen in the tax reform side and how that impacts all these, these forecasts here?
2: Yeah, I'm not so sure we're going to get tax reform. I think that that's going to be a real tough road to hoe. But uh, what we have been talking about lately is the thing called the Trump trade. And I've been arguing, kind of an outside-the-box argument, that the Trump trade is huge. It's positive, and it will stay that way because of the one thing everybody's missing: that uh, under the Trump administration, we have seen a dramatic and almost unimaginable reduction in regulation. The the number of regulations, the pace of regulations, is something that most people thought was impossible to reverse. As much as he's done, as many as one-third less regulations coming down than we had last year. More biz- businesses spend more money compi- uh, complying to regulations than they do in taxes. This reduction of regulations has been a massive form of a tax cut that has already occurred. That's been the Trump trade. I understand it's hard for people to understand. They want to talk about health care. they want to under- they want to talk about taxes. All that stuff could blow up. As long as he keeps cutting regulations at the rate he's cutting it at, and that filters through into less expenses, I think that he will remain a huge positive for the market. Last thought for you we did a thing yesterday where we looked at his approval ratings and everything else. It hasn't moved in five months. And so, for all this talk about the histrionics that are coming out of Trump and out of his Twitter account, and everybody's jaw hits the floor every third day because they can't believe what's happening, hasn't changed anything. His approval rating is at the exact same point low, but the exact same point it was in February. Yeah. So in five months of all this talk, it hasn't changed much. So the markets are saying, "Look, nothing's changing on that front. He's not going anywhere. He's not popular. He's not going to have anything happen except he's going to cut regulation, and that's good enough for the markets to keep for the risk markets to keep moving forward."
0: Very good. So we're going to short lawyers and um, buy small caps. It works for me. Okay. I uh, appreciate you coming on to the show, profiling our Camp Code talk discussions here. Uh, Jim Bianco of Bianco Research, I'm looking forward to to being there with you in Maine this weekend. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you. We've been listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. You can also follow us on the Behind the Markets podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody.